Howdy, I'm Kate Cavanaugh, and you're listening to the Mind, Body, and Soil podcast, where we're laying the groundwork for our land, ourselves, and for generations to come by looking at the way every thread of life is connected to one another. Communities above ground mirror the communities below the soil, which mirror the vast community of the cosmos. As the saying goes, as above, so below. Join me as we take a curious journey into agriculture, biology, history, spirituality, health, and so much more. I can't wait to unearth all of these incredible topics alongside you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Mind, Body, and Soil podcast, where we explore the threads of what it means to be humans woven into this earth. I am your host, Kate Cavanaugh, and I am so excited about this week's podcast because it has been a long time coming. This week, I host my friend, somebody who I consider to be a mentor and a role model, Kate Havstad. Kate is Kate is a force. She is a complete force of nature and watching the integrity, the grit, the honesty and the functionality paired with the incredible beauty with which she runs her businesses never ceases to amaze me. I met Kate very briefly one summer when her and I had both met through Ed Robertson of the Mountain and Prairie podcast and she was just passing through Denver and made time to come and meet me and it was just instant and we recently were able to get together for a Country Mice Do the City girls outing in New York City and we have been talking more and more and I really since the beginning of the podcast, wanted to bring Kate on, but I'm really glad that the timing worked out the way that it did, as with most things, because by the time Kate came on, I feel like I had a better understanding of how to highlight the incredible work that she's doing. I've been thinking a lot about cycles lately and all the different cycles that dovetail in and out of one another here on Earth and what it means to be a part of a cycle. What Kate is doing with a completely closed loop farm in Madras, Oregon is incredibly unique. And I think what her and her husband, Chris Kassad, are building is something that other people could learn from in the future, especially people in brittle climates that are struggling with with water. And that's a big part of what we talk about in this episode. But Kate isn't just a farmer. She is also an incredible hatter. My husband and I both own a hat from Kate that are just so precious to us. She is also an incredible, she has just built this company with regenerative leather as part of an effort to, again, close the loop in our food systems where we have quote unquote waste. She is passionate 
and fiery and so articulate. So it was just such a joy. I honestly feel like we just got to scratch the surface and that there is a lot more here to explore with Kate. So don't be surprised when you see her name come up again on the podcast roster and just please go explore what Kate is doing. She articulates it so beautifully on her various social media channels. Wow. What an honor. It's it's one of those things, honestly, where sometimes I get the most nervous when I'm interviewing people that I am lucky enough to consider my friends because I just want to give them a platform to really share their unique experience of life. And Kate's is certainly that. Before we dive into our conversation with Kate, I have just a tiny bit of housekeeping. I have been absolutely loving reading some of your reviews of the Mind, Body, and Soil podcast. We are really trying to grow this little platform right now. The podcast is just over a year old, and let me tell you, I am just getting started. One of the biggest ways that you can help this podcast grow is if you're enjoying it, if you could hit that five-star rating on Spotify or leave a review on Apple Podcasts, it really helps others know that this is something that they can find information and depth and nuance. And so with that, I just want to read this awesome review from Infrared Escape Artist. Essential Nourishment in Podcast Form. This is an overdue review because I have been listening to this podcast since October when it instantly became my favorite. My mind is blown in each episode and I have learned so much from Kate and each of her guests about topics I've been deeply interested in, as well as new topics I'm just discovering. Kate's curiosity mirrors my own and I am so grateful to listen to these in-depth conversations with so many beautiful people. Kate is beautifully articulate and brings such thoughtful insights and it is very clear the intention and love she pours into each episode. I always feel fully nourished after after listening. Thank you for creating this masterpiece. Infrared Escape Artist, thank you so much for that incredible review. To hear that the podcast leaves you feeling nourished is just absolute music to my ears and very much warmed my heart. I This has become just my greatest joy in life to bring you these conversations and I just want to keep going deeper and keep exploring. So I love the encouragement and I'm so grateful to each and every one of you for tuning in each week and going on these deep dives alongside me. This podcast is absolutely for you, wherever you are, whoever is listening, this is for you. And I just know that you're going to love this week's episode with Kate Havstad Kassad. Without further ado, here she is. Talking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so anyways, anywhere you want to like start. Yeah. <laughs> I thought a lot about this. I thought a lot about where to start with you. This podcast is so important and dear to me. And I have, I have all these quotes and I have all of these places that we could start, but I kept coming back to as I prepared this interview, the idea of loops and circles and cycles and systems and rotations. Mm-hmm. And there was this roundness to everything that I wanted to talk to you about. And I, I mentioned it to you and you wrote back and, and I was 
embarrassed that I didn't pick this up. You wrote back about a revolution, about range revolution. And I suddenly saw that there were even more circles and ways of identifying those circles. And so, and I think you know this, I love to define something. Mm -hmm. And so I went back to define revolution for myself. And I pulled these two particular definitions. One, a sudden radical or complete change. And two, a progressive motion of a body around an axis so that any line of the body parallel to the axis returns to its initial position while remaining parallel to the axis in transit and usually at a constant distance from it. And I thought a lot about your work and all of the loops and closing of loops that you're creating. And I wondered if you had an axis that you know that you pivot around, like what is your axis, your anchor point, your pillar? I, when you posed this to me before we started, like, do you know what your axis is or can you define that? Like my brain ping ponged a few different directions, but what it actually came back to that axis for me is finding and feeling and embodying like my place in the natural world. And then also helping inspire that thought process and helping other people feel that same sense of belonging and placeness. Mm, I love that so much because I think that you are creating a space. And I think with that, because I wasn't quite sure where I would go, I actually do want to read this quote at the outset for you, if that's all right. Yeah. So this is from Frijof Capra, who's a physicist and ecologist that I really love. And this is actually from a textbook called Systems View of Life. There are solutions to the major problems of our time, some of them even simple, but they require a radical shift in our perceptions, our thinking, our values. And indeed, we are now at the beginning of such a fundamental change of worldview in science and society, a change of paradigms as radical as the Copernican Revolution. Unfortunately, this realization has not yet dawned on most of our political leaders who are unable to, quote unquote, connect the dots, to use a popular phrase. They fail to see how the major problems of our time are all interrelated. Moreover, they refuse to recognize how their so-called solutions affect future generations. From the systemic point of view, the only viable solutions are those that are sustainable. A sustainable society must be designed in such a way that its ways of life, businesses, economy, physical structures, and technologies do not interfere with nature's inherent ability to sustain life. Mm. Mm -hmm. That's fantastic. It's so much of what we learn as land managers is how to get out of the way and just be a steward of natural systems and processes. And the one thing that I like wanted to pick up and revisit before this conversation with you um, is this little pamphlet that I got from the Schumacher Center because they put out all Mm. these great little publications. So this was the one thing that I wanted to look at this morning before I hopped off on with you is this pamphlet, An Economics of Peace. And it starts with Schumacher talking about 
Buddhist economics, and then it gets into Wendell Berry talking about the economics of peace in this day and age. And I just think that 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 is tied up in everything that we are doing and all of the work that I find myself like revolving around. (laughs) I love that. And economics of peace. And I think you're building that in a very diverse array of businesses. And I love that being in place in economics of peace, you know, to kind of go back to that axis that you were talking about are, are where you are, because I think that so many of the ventures that I've watched you grow over the years are coming out of this space of how can I be in service to a place? Mm -hmm. And whether that's Havstad Hat or Range Revolutions or Cassid Family Farms, there is just an honoring of the place that you are in and, and what it would mean to create economies of scale that are in service to that region and to that place and to that peace. I think... And I, was, I, I wasn't quite sure where to start, but I think I want to start with closed loop farming yeah. at Kassad Family Farms because it is that place that I think for you right now that everything, that that is home, that that is your home base. Mm-hmm. And I might be wrong in that and correct me if I am. You're very right. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, 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 the, it's actually one of the most wonderful ways to start when we talk about an economics of peace or yeah, how to define place and purpose in place and the concept of closed loop farming. I'll just jump in and explain what that is. Um, Closed loop farming is this concept that in our model, we are producing all of the inputs that this land, our animals, and the community that exists on this land need for health and holism. And everything that is produced on this land goes back into the systems to support that health. So that's a broad way of saying we, so for example, how to bring this into the practical, um, we're seed savers. So every season, uh, at the end of the season, uh, we collect the seeds from the crops we are growing. Uh, they are cleaned in a very, very old, like hundred-year-old seed cleaner. If they're not just like hand winnowed, you know, on a tarp with a fan, mm-hmm. um, and those are saved, and then they are replanted the next year. And all of the feed that we feed our animals, we grow here on the farm. So we are not importing. Um, feed for the pigs or the cattle. We do not import fertility. So we're not bringing, you know, um, fertilizers and whatnot um, onto this property. It is the animals and the crops and the systems and the rotations that provide that fertility that the land needs to grow abundantly and have homeostasis. Um, And then, yeah, all the, the products that whether it's it's a byproduct of a growing of a crop, say like the straw left behind after we harvest the grain, that also becomes 
either the mulch for the garden or the bedding for the animals. Um, and ideally, you know, the food products that are coming off of this land, obviously Chris and I sustain ourselves and Heston um, off of everything that comes from this farm. And so everything that we produce here on this farm, I mean, then is like actively making us. I mean, <laughs> we are just made up of everything that we consume. So we are made up of the land that we steward. So that is the whole like closed loop of this system that we have been working for um, a long time to get here. I'd love to tease out because as I, as I thought about all the, as I thought about your closed loop system, I realized that it's actually concentric circles, that it's loops and loops and loops and loops. And you just described some of those, that there's this feedback loop between you and the land. There are these loops of seasons where the seed from the end of one season is what begins the next season. There are loops in rotationally grazing animals where they are going in, in maybe not a precise circle, but that they are rotating mm -hmm. through these pastures and creating these loops interacting with one another. And so there are kind of these stacked functions of mm -hmm. concentric circles and closed loops that make up this space. And when we were together in New York a couple of weeks ago, we talked a lot about creating a template that mm. there are not many farms that are working to create these closed loop systems. And I think that so much, so much importing and outsourcing happens, right? We, we outsource our extraction when we bring in feed sometimes. We import fertility when we bring in fertilizer. And so I wondered if you might share with me a couple of loops that happen on the farm, whether that's with animals and all of the different crops that you grow and the seeds that you plant, whatever feels most, most yeah. present for you. Well, I'll tell you about what has been the development um, of our feed program, which is actually our cover cropping program, which is actually our like climactic resilience program. <laughs> so, <laughs> perfect. Yeah. So, okay. So, to set the backdrop for how this has evolved, I'll say that because I just introduced something that we'll probably get into, which is water and climate change and adapting. So, this is a direct result of our farm having lost 80% of our irrigation waters in five years. So to, yeah, to put that to somebody who's not a farmer, like that doesn't hit if, if you aren't an irrigator or you don't understand what it means to farm in an arid region. Our average precipitation here would be between eight and 11 inches. I would say the past couple of years, it's been like five. Like we're very brittle. Wow. So irrigation waters are how we farm. And to lose 80% of your irrigation waters is like to have any other business lose 80% of its operating capital. It's a drastic change. So we've responded very quickly because that's, I guess, what our profession is, is to adapt. And so let me get into this, this feed program. So 
what we started trialing was um, drought resilient cover crop mixes that were going to do well with very little irrigation waters. Um, this is not like a no irrigation water system. This is like, yeah, it wouldn't be full on dry land. This is like very minimal irrigation. And through the trials, what we were finding is working really well here is a mix of barley, triticale, sometimes wheat, rye, peas, vetch, we'll throw in um, clovers, radish, turnip, depending on what time of the year we're planting this or what the goal is, we might throw in sunflowers and flax and it's it kind of we have things that we'll throw into it but that basis is the grains with the peas um sometimes oats yeah and so that will get planted usually in the fall and we let it over winter depending on the year peas it, if the winter is not too bad, the peas will make it through the winter, but it depends if you're planting like a, a win, like a winter pea or a spring pea. So it overwinters, it like absorbs all that moisture that comes in through the winter. And then in the spring, things start to really like pop and go off and we'll let it grow to a certain stage in the plant's growth. And then we come in and we graze it with the cattle. And the timing of that graze with the cattle is uh, really important. Because what we want is we want the, the right timing of disturbance so that that graze by the cattle actually creates this response in which it sends a single signal down through the roots to like really bolster and like create more fortitude. And then, but also it creates this tillering effect so that the plant sends out more shoots, which once that grows out, the expansion of those shoots becomes more grain or seed heads thus increasing yield and then in the process you've got the cattle you know pooping and peeing all over the place which is just like the most wonderful dressing of you know nutrients and they move their way along and it's a really quick light graze we don't want them to come back and chomp multiple times it's a chomp and a move and then after that graze in the spring we let that field just recover all season long and grow it might see one or two irrigation sets. It's a very little amount of water. And then we come in in late July, sometimes early August, when things have really fully developed and we harvest that uh, grain or the seed. And that becomes the basis of what we will plant again next year as our cover crop mix. And it will also become the basis of our pig feed. And then, you know, so after we've come in and we harvest all that, and I, you brought this up actually in the correspondence, but what we've, well, let me finish the cycle. So we've harvested the grain. We bring all that grain back. We store it here on the farm in our grain bins. And then what is left is the standing field of straw. And so we come in then with our swather and we harvest that straw and um, we bale it and it becomes straw bales and it's organically grown and we sell some of them to other gardeners who want an organic straw. It's really hard to find organic straw. Yes, it is. It really is. We've tried. Yeah. We've tried. 
And it's like, if you're a gardener or anything that's trying to do something organic, like to take a pesticide ridden or herbicide ridden straw and throw that in your garden, is just like shitting on your intention. So it's yeah. really hard to find. So we're really stoked to provide that to people. And then we use a lot of it here on our farm for our own garden mulch and then all of our animal bedding. So the pigs, you know, are just in all the cattle, you know, we have a, a barnyard that uh, we feed in um, sometimes during the winter, depending on the rotation and like what ends up happening in that barnyard is you've just got layers and layers of that straw bedding, the poop and the pee and all of that just amassing all winter long. And it just becomes this like black gold, which we put into the compost pile. So that is one of those. So then, right. Then the compost of that straw bedding then becomes, you know, again, the amendment that we will put onto the garden and the seeds that we will sow again. And then the whole cycle begins again. It's beautiful. And it's incredible to capture and recapture that fertility where you are also building fertility within the soil. And I want to capture that too, that the seed mix is also acting really well in this brittle environment to help open the soil, help capture whatever precipitation you do get and help build soil organic matter that is going to create more resiliency for your farm. And, And correct me if I'm wrong in any of that. No, you're so right. And it's just worth highlighting that like the seeds that are harvested and saved and replanted (laughs) much like us humans, if you've made it, like it's because you were like adapted to make it right. So that which we are saving and replanting is the thing that like made it last season. And it makes it, it, it fits into this system. It fits into this climate. It has the ingrained intelligence and resilience that we're going to need for it to survive in this climate. So that that aspect of seed saving, I think, is something people don't think too much about. Like, it's not a simple task for a farm to, you know, and we aren't purists. Like, we order in seeds sometimes from Johnny's or preferably from like Seed Savers Exchange because they focus on heirlooms. But that regional adaptation mm-hmm. in the seed and the cover crop mixes, I think, is a really critical thing for us to develop and move forward if we're all going to make it because things are changing in our environments so rapidly. It's almost like, and I don't know enough about seeds, it's almost like epigenetics in humans that we are, we are turning on things that are needed in the basis of that feedback loop. Here's another feedback loop between the seed and its environment in order for it to be best adapted. And something I think that you do so beautifully is this idea of thinking about the ecology of a region and how to support that through time. And I think that 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 act of seed saving is honoring the evolution of those seeds unique to that region Mm -hmm. so that they can do their best work together. And I wonder if you might talk about that too, because one of the pieces that we haven't fully brought in here is this biodiversity standpoint of you have the, this diverse seed mixture Mm -hmm. that is both becoming adapted to that environment, but they are also 
helping each other. And there is an interdependence within that space, not just between the animals and the seeds, but between the seeds themselves. Mm. Yeah. Thank you for opening up that portal because this has been one of the most beautiful, just unintended positive consequences of trialing these things is seeing what happens when you foster increased biodiversity, even in a cropping system, which is not a typical mindset. Like we, we sit here surrounded by conventional agriculture here in Madras, Oregon. We are in farming central and it's, it's biodiversity can be looked at as a, a, a nuisance in a sense, where if you're mm. a certain sort of farmer and you've got a certain thing presenting in your field that is out of step with the contract that you've been given, it could jeopardize your entire contract, right? And so our model of abundance of biodiversity is counterculture to industrial ag. But the results of this. So I'll dive into like observations. So for example, we last season, we did most of our fields this way, where it was that mix altogether. But we did several fields where it was just critic, uh, just triticale. We did a field that was just peas. We did a field that was just oats. And we did a field that was just barley. And Here's something that happens. So first of all, with the peas, you know, peas will grow all season long and they'll get, you know, uh, when planted alone, they will get, say, two or three feet tall, maybe, and then they will sort of flop over. And so from a logistical standpoint, when you come in to harvest the seed or the grain, the peas, and you're combining it, uh, all that stuff is laying flat on the ground and it becomes a sort of like pain in the butt process. You end up scooping up a lot of like dirt and rocks and it just makes sure. the process of harvest a nuisance. When we grow the peas as a part of this mix, the peas and the vetch, they climb the, the stalks of the grains. So the rye or the triticale stalks that get very tall. So as a result, we had peas that were like five feet tall, five and a half feet tall. And it was incredible to walk through this cover crop field. I've got some incredible photos of it that are, you know, peas up to here on me when I'm pointing to my ears. Uh, <laughs> and it was just like this, like, oh my God, it was like a, like, it was, we were giddy to see this happening. So we've created all this additional biomass above ground, which means we've also, you know, increased all the biodiversity and all of the biomass below ground. We've increased the yield as well. So the fields that were planted as a monoculture, say the triticale, I think that we got about 2,000 pounds per acre on average off of those fields. And coming off of the very diverse cover crop mix fields, we got an average of about 6,000 pounds an acre. So we nearly tripled Whoa. the yield on what came off of that land when things were planted in that cover crop mix. So we can't fully articulate a lot of the, the why this happens. And, and, but like at, from an observational standpoint, the more you foster that biodiversity, the more you are rewarded. Mm. Yeah. I was picking up this morning. I woke up really early. I was nervous about this, this podcast. And uh, I'm reading Andreas Weber, 
who wrote The Biology of Wonder and Matter and Desire. He has this idea that all things that are living, right, whether it's a plant or a cell or a human organism or an ecosystem, wants more aliveness, that we trend towards this idea of aliveness and biodiversity in that space is part of integrating more aliveness. It's more individuals that are working in concert to create that aliveness. And through that, that one of the biggest risks as we face this sixth mass extinction event and this massive loss of biodiversity is in many ways, the loss of the ability to know ourselves in the web of things. Mm -hmm. And I was so struck when you were sharing this story about the way that these, this interplanting works in concert and how much it has to teach us Mm. about ourselves and about what it means to work in concert with one another within the context of a piece of land or a community or a region. And I think that's something that when I look at the work that you're doing in this space, and I don't know of anybody that is is doing quite the work that you and Chris are, mm. I see this biodiversity in the way that you are building that interconnected community and regional ecosystem as a reflection of the incredible biodiversity and interconnectedness and working togetherness that you've built on your farm. I have to thank Chris and this farm for this just like education that I have gotten because when I first started working at Chris's first farm, which was called Juniper Jungle Farm back in the day, it was Juniper Jungle because it was in this landscape of like many old junipers. But also like his farming style has always been a bit like, I don't want to say undone, but like the jungle aspect (laughs) is sort of, it is him. Like you would walk into his greenhouse and it was just sort of wild in a sense. And that makes sense because he actually comes from like having studied permaculture and being like kind of that guy. And I, you know, early in the farming journey, I may have looked at other people's models of farms and seen the pristine rows and the perfection and the single crop and no, you know, weed out of place. And I would look sometimes at our farm and be like, oh my God, like I'm like embarrassed to post this picture because look at all of our weeds. And like that was just these days, I have a totally different perception of the purpose of a weed. And the beauty of God, what what I may have thought was like messy or undone. And now I am like, this is the symphony that we should strive for. Mm. Um, and I want to touch back on like the purpose of a weed, because this can be so applied to like us and our lives, right? Like, like me- mechanically, we could look at a weed as a, a failure of ourselves to control this out of placeness of this thing you know, a nuisance we need to eradicate and just this thing that is, you know, uh, pointless. But what I've learned more recently and like Nicole Masters has actually, and her work in soil has really helped me start to really get a grip on this. When weeds talk, they are telling us something on the landscape. So for example, 
if you've got a thistle problem and thistles are the worst, everyone hates thistles, but like thistles have a purpose and a point and they're communicating something and they are bringing something from the depths of the mineral bank up to what the soil needs. So typically when thistles present, it's because you have a calcium deficiency. And if you test, if you actually do tissue tests of those weeds, Mm. they will be very high in that mineral that you are lacking on that land. So, you know, you could walk around uh, your farm and you could do tissue samples of these weeds and they will tell you exactly what is it that your land is deficient in and then how to address it. And, you know, in biodynamics, there's, you know, you can create these compounds, you can harvest that weed, you can create this kind of fermented mixture, and you could go out and actually spray that compound onto the weed itself, and then thus actually help to eradicate that weed issue. So like, I don't know where I want to like take this, but in essence, like how we see the farm landscape Either we look at it at the surface level of this thing I must eradicate and deal with, but we miss out on this opportunity to actually like hear what the land is trying to tell us. And that is, yeah, something that Chris has really helped me see. I think it's so beautiful too, to be connected to a space where you can learn what it means to listen to what land is telling you Mm. and to respond. To respond in kind. That's like, you know, nothing has amplified that more than the past several years of record high temperatures and record drought and record fired season. Like nothing has amplified the need for that to be a skill set to survive. Like really from a farm perspective, but from like a society perspective, we've shifted our mindset hugely from one of this is what we want to do on our farm, right? We want to be potato growers. We want to expand our potato production to what is the land asking of us and what are these times asking of us? And since we have adopted that way of like that lens to look at things things have radically shifted and we've had these incredible learnings we've had you know in in times that could be looked at as dismal you know extremely challenging climactically extremely challenging to to be a farmer in the shifting landscape we've had some like incredibly high highs and joys because we are listening and then applying that listening. It feels like a co-creation. And I think that this is so beautiful that out of a massive struggle, and I want to come back to this idea of 80% of your irrigation waters being cut, because I think, and, and to compare that to working capital, I think really puts it into perspective for people that might not be familiar with water issues in the West and just just the profundity of that and the grief of that to have your farm and your mission to be built around an idea that is suddenly not 
not possible with the resources that are available to you and to have to pivot and to number one, to be able to pivot at all and to be able to see that and to listen to the land and say, okay, how can we, how can we work within this context, within this framework that we're being given to work in a way that is creating resiliency in one of the most brittle environments. And I want to talk about water. I want you to talk about water because this has been such a big part of your journey in Madras and you speak about it so beautifully and I'll, I'll let listeners know, you know, we did a very early episode with Heather Hansman who wrote the book down river, but this is something that I wanted to hear from your perspective and how the different players in it, whether that is the agricultural setting and more urban environments, the just the the legislation around it and everything. I just want to hear it all. I want to open this by actually like anchoring it in an experience that I had before um, before I think I embodied the experience mm-hmm. of water as sacred through the most recent years, five years. And I, so I'm trying to remember, I think it was 2016 was, um, when the Dakota access pipeline protests were happening in North Dakota and Chris and I were still at our old farm in, east of Bend, Juniper jungle. And when those protests started, I can't even explain exactly why I felt so called to go be a part of that, but I did. I went with uh, a handful of people from Central Oregon and um, went and joined the those protests in North Dakota. And whatever you think about <laughs> that whole event, um, it was an extremely it was an extremely important thing for me to go do and see with my own eyes and sit and listen to be in an environment with native elders um, talking about like mini Washoni, which means water is life. Like to sit in that environment um, coming from my background and to learn from those people I was so fortunate to learn from. I just want to like anchor my, my start of, of reverence for water in that experience because culture is much wiser than our like current culture. Understand the sacredness of water and the sacredness of um, man's relation to water and landscape and protecting of that. And that had a deep, deep impact on me, not just in that learning, but also in learning to like what extent power and uh, bigger authority will uh, seek to control those resources and, and what it means for people to protect them. When we moved to Madras, which is where our farm is now, in 2017, we had a full uh, allotment of our water. And for this district, we are a junior irrigation district. What that means is the whole Western United States has been founded on this doctrine of prior appropriation. Mm-hmm. And it's just this sort of seniority system. So first irrigation district established in the Deschutes River Basin is the most senior. And then we are just one of the younger ones. 
And what that means is that when resources get more constrained, the junior irrigation districts will be the first to have allotment cuts. And so those cuts came in 20, our first cut came in 2018. So it was our second season uh, here on the new farm. And um, a full allotment of water uh, in this district at 100% would be two and a half acre feet of water. And uh, to compare this to one of the other irrigation districts that's more senior, their 100% allotment would be five acre feet of water. So just a starting base, we've got half the water that like a more senior district has on a normal 100% allotment year. And then to frame the dramatic shift, so starting with two and a half acre feet of water in 2017, last season, 2022, we were given 0.5 acre feet of water to farm. So that is the, the scale of change. And what's wild to think about as well, um, when we farmed east of Bend and we were in a more senior district, water was very free flowing. We actually didn't understand very much at all about how irrigation waters worked in this region because there was no scarcity or we never felt the scarcity. We just, we didn't have to care. We didn't have to understand. I think that's how most people operate with water because you turn on a faucet and it's there. You just mm-hmm. don't understand. You don't have to understand because it's not scarce. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it, it's been the scarcity, which has caused us to be students of Western water law and advocates for um, more equitable water rights, you know, in a basin like ours. Uh, and what's crazy too is that, you know, in 2017, when we had two and a half acre feet of water, we could grow everything we could dream of growing in this region. We could have grown every vegetable crop we ever wanted to. And we had to be careful and conservation minded, but yeah. Uh, and so when I think about now the fact that there are irrigation districts in this region that have an allotment of five acre feet of water, it's a very gluttonous thing to think about. Like it, it, mm-hmm. it's not necessary. You don't need that to be a professional farmer. And in fact, those districts that are, you know, senior districts, um, they're no longer agricultural regions. So like a lot of other places in the United States, you know, may have been an agricultural region in the early 1900s. But a bend organ has, uh, it is fractured, it is urbanized. So it is now um, a non-ag re- region that is getting a majority of the irrigation waters. So that's the landscape. I, two questions. What What is a space like Bend, Oregon, that's a little bit more urban? Mm-hmm. How are they utilizing their water allotment? Because it's not to grow food. No, no. I mean, irrigation waters will go to golf courses. There is a private water ski community that currently hoards uh, a, a certain portion of Tumalo Irrigation District water. <laughs> um, and then you have, or we have these insane use it or lose it laws. Um, so yeah. wealthy landowners will say a 10 acre ranchette in order to keep their EFU uh, exclusive farm use designation, thus the tax break that comes with owning EFU land, they have to apply that irrigation water. So, uh, or else they will lose that irrigation right. And then their EFU designation, you know, it's, so it, uh, it's being applied in a very wasteful way. And, um, 
you know, uh, any system that allows for and in fact perpetuates waste is inherently violent. So uh, water allocation in this basin is, um, it's a violence against land. It's a violence against the communities that uh, rely on a, a local food system. That is an incredible way of putting that. Will you say that one more time? I just, I want to, I want yeah. to internalize that. Yeah. Um, any system that perpetuates waste is inherently violent. Yeah. And we'll get into this, I'm sure, in other ways. I mean, this drives my my mission with Range Revolution and all yeah. that comes in the world of fashion and whole carcass utilization. But that's that's something that Wendell Berry talks about in his piece in Economics uh, of Peace. And it, until our society thinks about that statement, our own participation in systems that perpetuate waste, any government system like the beneficial use laws in Oregon that perpetuates the application of water for no purpose, until we really think about that, uh, we will have uh, an economy of violence, you know? So, yeah. I want to get into teasing out some of those those other waste systems, but before we do that, I, I'm not done with water. If that's all right, <laughs> we're because never done with water. We're never done with water. We're never yeah. done with water, and I really want to understand a little bit more about the drought pressures that are happening in that region. And I think, I think for those right, like I ca I came from the west, and I came from Colorado, where the Colorado River Compact turned 100 last year and there are a lot of pressures and Oregon and Washington are kind of in a different space with water outside of of my knowledge but you we're mentioned right behind Colorado we're right behind it what you're right behind it yeah you mentioned something on a podcast that really struck me because I want to better understand the pressures that are reducing water in your region. And you talked about the difference between bureaucratic and climatic drought. Mm. Yeah. So I can think you tease that apart. Yeah. Sorry. Go yeah. Ahead. Yeah. That's, that's something that I've really um, started to talk about recently to help people understand, because I think really people will just be like, gosh, it's too bad for the farmers because you know, it's, we've got drought. Like it's this thing that we have zero control over when in fact, a lot of the drought pressure that agriculturalists face in the West is bureaucratically imposed drought. And this comes back to, yeah, the way that I'll just speak to Oregon because that's a system I've been such a student of. Um, uh, Oregon law, actually, uh, that, that system of prior appropriation, the fact that we have really no thorough definition of beneficial use of water. Um, it just means that water has been applied. Those sorts of uh, legislative frameworks are the reason we don't have equitable water distribution in a basin like ours. It's the reason that we operated with 0.5 acre feet of water last year as a professional farm growing food in Oregon, um, whereas a, a golf course in Bend would have been given their full allotment between four to five acre feet of water last season. So I just want the conversation to be very honestly framed for what it is, which it is partially driven by 
um, the, the climate's presentation of water for the year, but it is hugely driven by legislative frameworks. Yes. And the private water ski communities, allotment of water in yeah. opposition to people who are growing food. Yeah. Like here's, here's an example too. Like this should be a duh thing. So, so if you've got a patron in an irrigation district, central Oregon irrigation district, which is the district in Bend who wants to transfer water to, they say, I want to give my water allotment to a farmer in North unit from the state law perspective that wouldn't satisfy a beneficial use clause. So that landowner would be at risk of losing that irrigation right. So it actually, right, it, 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 it incentivizes not transferring water to where it's most needed, even if patrons want to do that with what they own is their water right. So one of the proposed updates, legislative bills that is probably going to come in the next couple of years would be an update to beneficial use so that the transfer from one irrigation district to another irrigation district would satisfy that beneficial use clause. I would love to get more radical and really define beneficial use and say application of irrigation waters to a golf course in the desert. In fact, the like 32nd golf course in our desert is not beneficial. Thus, it should not be granted irrigation water or groundwater rights to pump. And this is a very, very big, very complicated topic. It brings up a lot of fear and old wounds that peg agriculturalists against environmentalists. That's a huge mm -hmm. dynamic that plays out in Central Oregon through, we have a an organ spotted frog issue, which compounds all of this. And that's a whole rabbit hole. But yeah, it's, um, it's deeply complicated. And it's going to take really patient, really compassionate, really collaborative work to shift was a 100 year old system that has not been updated. And I love this analogy, like water in the West is 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 a technology akin to if we were all still driving around in model t cars like we are driving around a model t system of water allocation in the west that's that's what we're struggling against with with massive in with a desire to change and to strengthen a resilient system, to bring water into brittleness, to provide food for people, to... I just don't know. I, I, I don't know how to underscore how important this is, because I think the conversation that we have going forward around food, especially in the United States, because I think the Western United States grows the majority of our food. Like we cannot talk about food without talking about water. Yes. Yeah. We can't talk about food without talking about water. We can't talk about land use without talking about water. We can't talk about, you know, yeah. Um, anything <laughs> fashion, we can't talk about fashion without talking about water consumption. Yeah. And again, it's like, I, I wanted to ground the conversation in water with that experience that I had in North Dakota during the Dakota Access Pipeline protests because, again, we are, we are just a, a young culture that has not been raised in a way 
to have reverence for these natural resources that are finite. And again, it's it's easy and I understand how we got here because you just turn on a faucet and you just flip on a switch. You don't think about how the water got to you, how the energy got to you, how does our existence play on systems of convenience that, you know, uh, yeah, either we're building an economy of peace or we're building an economy of violence and we've been in a stage of an economies of violence. And I have nothing but hope and optimism that things will shift, but it comes down to really nuanced conversations like this one we're having about really complicated issues. Like I could talk about the, like the, the mechanics of water in the West. And I often do that, but I, what is underneath that is culture. It is reverence. It is Mm. respect. It is understanding your place in the natural world. Mm. Yes. And I think one of the reasons that I wanted to, to deep dive on water with you is because I think that gaining that reverence requires some education. Like we can't, we can't have reverence for what we might not know or understand. Mm -hmm. And like you said, when we turn on that tap, there isn't the knowledge of where that is coming from and the issues and the all the threads that that pulls on. And so it, it we have to illuminate these spaces before we can begin to change them, if that makes sense, before we I, can create a, an economy of peace. And I want to I want to add this in there because I think I wrote something to you recently and I can't remember it, but what brought, I I was just thinking that if you're a person who lives in Bend, Oregon, you might be listening to this or whatever city, you might be listening to this and be like, you know, the, the response that I think has been the enculturation that has happened has been like, well, you know, turn off the faucet between each time you do a dish and don't take too long of a shower. Like, like how can we conserve our water consumption? is been this placement of responsibility on the individual in these ways that are honestly not going to move the needle. It's been a campaign to make us feel like, well, shit, I'm not doing good enough. I need to take shorter showers. Meanwhile, the real culprit of this injustice is the fucking golf course developer who's going to pump the same amount of water out of the ground that the entire city of Prineville uses in a year. Like that, that's what we should be focusing on. Um, The 32nd golf course is what you said too. The 32nd golf course. I'm speaking about this, this golf course, the Thornburg resort, which is this, it's a 17 year battle of central Oregon. It's been the most epic thing to follow. It has been how I have learned about land use policy and how you battle these things, how you might win in these battles, which comes down to bureaucratic process. But I just want to frame this because whether it's water and that dynamic, right? Where they're shining the light over here when it's like, don't pay attention to this over here. And it's the Mm -hmm. same when it Mm -hmm. comes to, you know, the oil industry telling you to recycle that yogurt carton. And if you don't, you feel like a fucking failure of an advocate for earth when really it's like they have been funneling all of their sort of efforts into rebranding oil to be the clothes that we wear. 
And we've totally like missed that because we've been so focused on how we're not recycling well enough. These are the dynamics that um, I spend time thinking about. I mean, you know that I do too, that when we put the onus on the individual, then we have, we have commuted the conversation from the real issue at hand. And we've also created a, what I think is a, a very negative feedback loop between ourselves and our environments that, that we feel like a blight And so we further and further move away from our environments instead of recognizing that we are a part of the environment. Yes, Kate. Yes. And that, that, that feeling like we are a blight, that, that separation that we should remove ourselves from land and let it revert to this bucolic version of wilderness, that separation, that guilt, it lends to what I see and I've seen even be written about as this sort of like, people can be paralyzed by this like doomsday projection that they feel like earth is on. If you just read the headlines of the news, you could be paralyzed and never take action yes. because it feels so huge and impossible and we are just fucking up so bad. And that narrative is, I think, whether intentional or not, it is disempowering us to participate in the solutions. And that is yes. what I see so directly and what I really want to help that access that that I revolve around helping people find their place in the natural world because I s- exist here on this farm that has seen arguably some of the greatest climactic challenges over the past 5 years but last year I nearly frolicked through a field looking at like the bounty and resilience that is possible against the hardest of conditions and I want people to understand that possibility and that place in the world. Mm-hmm. I could get emotional talk. And the possibility of... Me too. Me too. Because I think... I asked my friend Molly on a, uh, uh, in her episode of the Mind, Body, and Soil podcast, I asked her, what does the soil say about what is possible? Mm. And I think the gift that maybe we are given as people that get to interact with land in such an intimate way that have an opportunity to listen is that it feels like so much is possible in a space where that 24-hour news cycle is telling us that we should give up hope that it's not possible that that everything is is on fire mm. and and I think it does. It separates us. And I think it moves us away from solutions that are based in the earth and towards these more mechanized solutions. It moves us away from regenerative meat and to an impossible burger. It moves us away from leather and into some oil-based leather product. It moves us away from 
everything that is real and steeped in the incredible reality that is possible when we co-create with nature, which I think is something that when I look at your work, you co-create with nature in all of these different beautiful ways. And I think that maybe this is a good space to bring in Range Revolution and to talk about its role in building an economy of peace and addressing an incredible source of waste within the system. Yeah. Yeah. Range Revolution. It's, I wasn't intending to start a new company. I wasn't intending to like, <laughs> take this on. And it's one of those things in life that my anchor is like, I've just visually always had, I actually have a compass tattooed on my arm because when I was just very young um, and got this tattoo, the concept was like, it's very easy to kind of get pulled here and there by the like, the sparkle promise of this and the, you know, sparkle opportunity of that, but to like, remember to trust the compass and come back to that center point of purpose. So range revolution began because I wanted to create a luggage piece for Habstead Hatco. And I was like, I want to create this awesome luggage piece for hat people. And, um, I want it to be in leathers sourced in a way that I, uh, source everything else in my life, the ethos I lived the rest of my life by. I wanted to find regional hides that were coming from, you know, sustainable or regenerative ranchers that I know. And that was so naive at the time. And what that opened the door to was seeing that all of the hides from all of our cattle all of our friends cattle, all the mid-sized processors that I know of here in Oregon are being thrown into the trash. And it just, it blew my mind. I just couldn't even believe that. I just never thought of that, that system of waste. Yes. And sometimes I I know processors that pay to have them hauled away. Most. Right. Like not only are they trash, but they are, they are paying to have them taken away. Yep. They are liabilities to the processors. It is ridiculous and it's where we're at. Yeah. And I I mean, to compound that, you know, in the United States alone, it's 5 million hides a year are thrown into the trash. Wow. Into the trash. And this is going into landfills? Yeah. Some might incinerate. So, I mean, the options are uh, landfill it or um, burn it. (laughs) Yeah. So that, you know, and then I was like, okay, so, so this bag I have, you know, this, this leather product I have, what is this? Where is this coming from? Right. So then I opened the door to what are the, you know, commodity leathers and what are those supply chains? And I immediately, you know, was met with the realization that it's extremely opaque and it's extremely opaque for a reason. Uh, A majority of the commodity leather supply chain can be traced back to um, I mean, it's it's primarily foreign, so it's going to be importing from New Zealand, China, or Brazil, particularly the Brazilian hides. There's a lot of focus on those right now because they are often products of deforestation. So, you know, we've got the kind of worst um, systems of aggregation are uh, kind of rewarded by commodity fashion supply chains. So when I see those two things and I'm like, here we have 
uh, hides going into the trash, lost realization of asset opportunities for ranchers and processors alike. And then you see systems which are perpetuating deforestation and a globalized violent supply chain. That seems like a solvable problem. How about I solve it? (laughs) I heard you say recently that art and design have a way of communicating cultural ethos. Mm. I think that that's a double-edged sword right now, that we have what we refer to as art and design in the fashion world, in the fast fashion world, and what ethos that's communicating, which I think through the lens of this conversation starts to look like an economy of violence. Yeah. Then we have something else that you're building with Range Revolution. I wonder what that ethos is. And I also... Wonder a little bit about the numbers on that waste and carcass utilization and what we're looking at and how that can really impact the the very tight margins of farming and ranching. Yeah. I mean, you understand this well as a butcher and somebody who works, you know, through Western Daughters and all of your own work that, um, you know, in in your standard processing facility, only about 65% of a cattle carcass is being utilized. And so because we don't utilize hide, offal, and fat for the most, those are considered waste products. And um, really the rancher is only getting a return on, um, you know, those primal cuts of meat. And that is when you work in such a small margin business, such as ranching or farming or processing or whole food distribution, all tiny margin businesses. Yeah, one to three percent is what I would put it at. I don't know what you would put it at. Yes, through our food, I mean, yeah, even food distributors like Ag Connections, like, yeah, one to three percent. That lost opportunity of uh, hide and offal and fat utilization, if we could take a 65% carcass utilization and raise it to 75 or 80 percent, that would mean a world of difference in the economic realities of ranchers. So yes. that's how I started looking at it was I was like, you know, I've got the the design mindset that is like, we can solve this supply chain. And then I'm thinking about it like really from like a producer first mindset that if we build this system right, not only can we increase um, the return to the rancher, a return to the processor, if we can build market opportunities that incentivize best practices on land, however that looks to the rancher, but the world is talking about regenerative you know, principles. If we can build a value-added marketplace for those goods that incentivize those practices, then we can increase the return to the rancher and we can increase their ability to implement best practices on land and pollinate through their impact on land. So I see this as You're- this like interconnected opportunity to solve a waste issue, to solve also what is a consumer issue. Consumers right now are demanding transparency and options that make them feel good about where their dollars go. And, and it's solving the economic, well, it's not solving, but it might improve the economic realities for ranchers. And I like to highlight this in the siloed conversation 
from a fashion brand's perspective, what I see them focusing on is the materials. We want the materials. We want to talk about the materials. Um, regenerative, regenerative, regenerative. We don't have regenerative outcomes on land unless producers have even the brain space to operate um, in a way that they can be creative and think about new approaches so that they can imply more regenerative outcomes. When a rancher is just like operating in this fear space of scarcity, which so many are, it's really hard to um, learn new things, implement and trial new approaches, invest into monitoring their land. So if we want regenerative, we better see these producers get more profitable and however we source and whatever supply chain we build must further increasing their profits because the profits are in the trash right now. Yeah. I think to distill a little bit what you said and to reflect it back to you and see what you think of this right now, we have this negative feedback loop mm. where the very, you know, these yields that, that aren't enough off of whole animal utilization that are sitting, you know, somewhere between 60 and 67%, I think at best, honestly, yeah. are giving the rancher, you know, maybe one to 3% to work with. But in all honesty, I think many farmers and ranchers are working in the red, which is very frightening. And so then they have no, no, just like you said, no brain space, no working capital to become creative about how to build different systems, have no incentive to work in a more holistic context within their practices. But there is an opportunity here to change that into a positive feedback loop where you have this, this structure that is supporting the farmer and rancher at a financial, financially sustainable space. And I think that, that that has always been critical to me. We can't have a conversation about sustainability without talking about financial sustainability or even viability. Yeah, And you then have what is creating a better feedback loop. You have better yields and you have a space for, for all parts of the animal to go. You are decreasing waste and you are modeling this sort of idea of economic peace out of nature, which there is no waste in nature, right? Like there, there, nature does not waste. Like even what we call waste, human waste, right? Like fecal matter or urine, that is not waste. It is part of a beautiful cycle and loop. And we can make that here too. Yeah. And you're doing that. We are building it. And what that looks like from a tangible like supply chain perspective is, so right now, through the systems I have um, available to aggregate these hides, the ranchers are getting $10 per hide. That is, and this is a, you know, a, a, just a, a raw salted hide. This is not a finished leather. I am building the economic model of range revolution so that we can get that number at least to $25 return to the rancher plus a return to the processor. So in order to do that, like we have to reverse engineer 
Like we have to build this company with like that regenerative ecological and social outcomes as a center pillar around which we build the rest of the company and the rest of the organization. And so we have to reverse engineer from, okay, finished product. So I'm focusing on primarily like handbags and luggage, some smaller items like journals and other little things. But I'm focusing on this sector of the fashion industry being handbags because they have a built-in profit margin that will allow this to happen. So I'm strategic Mm -hmm. in what area of the industry I focus on. And then setting those prices so that we can work backwards through manufacturing to the processing and tannery to the kill floor to the rancher to get that dollar amount back to them what i see happening like in the fashion sector like in general like in the big big like companies that are established who are trying to like source regenerative materials like they're still looking for those commodity leather prices because they don't think holistically they don't think producer first they just want the raw material to put a stamp on something and the consumer will be like yay regenerative but like how are we actually building the whole system that improves the economic reality starting there? And that's so much easier said than done. Like, <laughs> it's like these are all good ideas, but you're working against the stream. You're working counterculture. You're working against models in which they have shareholders that hold CEOs of companies responsible to hit this profit number for the year. And you're also working against how we've built businesses for the past however many decades. And what we've got is we've got these giant organizations that have added sustainability like an appendage to this large organization. And it's not working. Like the past 20 years of companies talking about sustainability has moved the needle very slowly and barely at all. Like it's not working that model of business. So Range Revolution is addressing the waste issue. And it's also addressing like how we build businesses into the future to be holistic in just how you structure an organization. As you were talking, I had this picture of range revolution in in the center of a revolution acting as an axis around which two changes are happening in parallel ways, one sort of like a top down and one from the bottom up. Mm-hmm. And I haven't fully decided which is which, but in one space, you're building a, a feedback loop. You're building another feedback loop between soil, rancher, processor, and this consumer good that is then flowing more money back to the farmer and rancher and soil, right? And so like, here is this little revolution that is happening right here. But then tangentially to that is this revolution where this bag, this this bag that is traceable is asking much bigger industries to question their own business practices and the way that they form business. And I know that that is an incredibly tall and difficult order, but I also know it's one you're capable of doing. And that 
that revolution, that process that happens within that industry where you're saying, I need you, CEO of this company, to look at the soil and understand that that is at the heart of what is important. And to recreate economic flow around that axis instead of the profit margin that has become the axis of all of all corporate enterprise. Does that, does that make sense? Absolutely. And this is, you know, uh, somebody who's been very supportive in my journey of this business said to me, or actually said in a conversation or a speech he gave, which I hold on to is in this next chapter of building an economy of peace. Um, he didn't reference that, but I will. We, but we need both. We need the bigger to get better and we need the better to get bigger. Yes. We have, you know, and, and Kassad Family Farms and Range Revolution are awesome little examples of this bottom-up approach. Meanwhile, it had to have meaningful impact. We will need those giant organizations to improve. Uh, I don't have super high hopes as to like exactly how good they're gonna get, but if we can shift their sourcing. If they can funnel the resources that they have, the capital impact that they could make, even just a few percentages into regenerative producers, that would make literally uh, a life a life difference for that rancher. And it's really a tiny percentage of their sourcing supply chain. So it's a yes and model. Yes. Yes. And I, I want to bring this back to a quote that I pulled from you. And you said, we do not anymore or do not yet live in a time which acknowledges the extensive ecological services that agriculturalists provide to our species' planetary survival. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was inspired. I think I wrote that thinking about... <sighs> Uh, how the agriculturalists of Central Oregon are carrying the burden and weight of saving the organ spotted frog species, which is a species that used to exist from, you know, British Columbia all the way down through California on the West Coast. And now its last stand of survival is here in Central Oregon. And so we're responsible to save this species after all others operated in a way in which the species started to go extinct and no one else has any accountability. No one else takes any responsibility. Nobody else pays any sort of ecological reparations for the damages done, but the agriculturalists will carry that burden. And that's... I think that's true of many, many things. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Well beyond beyond the spotted frog, not to downplay that importance. Yeah, and I mean, when I if I bring this back to leathers and supply chain sourcing, mm-hmm. we're going to create the same dynamic if we don't think holistically about building supply chains with holism. Because if all we have now is XYZ corporations saying, gimme, gimme regenerative raw materials, and they don't take any active investment into bolstering the producers who manage the land, which may provide the growing supply chain they are now demanding, then all we're going to have is this like extractive um, hoarding of resources again. 
So that is what I am hoping to help frame is that while we talk about or or food, I mean, you know, it, it, you have to become an active participant in supporting these systems that we all now want to have. And just because all of a sudden um, we say we want a, a regenerative piece of meat and we want a regenerative hide um, does not mean that supply chain exists and this will be a process of building and it's going to take really people to support it. I'm really appreciative that you are able to look at economies of scale in this space. Mm -hmm. I think that it is it is not easy to build an alternative to this system without considering how we, how how people that are working in a holistic model are scaling, are aggregating, are pooling community resources into whether that's the processor or the distributor, that we have to have economies of scale in order to work as counterculture to the industrial complex. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, I've been a part of, you know, small local food systems and we've been a very small farm in the past. And I see, you know, and I see the, the smaller systems of, of craft and artists, you know, artisans creating of products, but in order to make this stuff like truly work from an economic standpoint, there is an economies of scale we've got to reach to make that work and building to that. And then honoring what the limits of that growth are, mm -hmm. what we've not been very good at yet as a culture. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So both taking this, this mindset of say, you know, uh, where places like you and I come from, from a small farm mentality, from a regional mentality, and, and learning what it takes to build to an economies of scale that then also honors the limits to growth. Like that is something I'm extremely interested in. And that is, that is everything that I am doing with range. It is building a model to exemplify that. And, you know, we're also doing that in food systems here in central Oregon. You know, uh -huh. we could just I was about to say, yeah, we could just, you know, we could just sling our veggies, you know, direct to consumer and our meats direct to consumer like we've done for the past decade. Um, but what we kept hitting is, you know, um, in a need to scale up some, we need to have these models of distribution that support farmers reaching those economies of scale. And so, mm -hmm. you know, one of the ways that we've taken action to do this is we actually a small group of us in our region of Central Oregon, we took over a local food distribution business, which was called Agricultural Connections. And we've worked with them for the past nine years and we've grown up together. And we, we acquired that business and we have placed it into cooperative ownership, really identifying that the key to growing more young farmers the key to bolstering uh, a resilient and decentralized local food system here in Central Oregon came down to having a distribution mechanism which would support these farmers and these ethos in perpetuity. And so what was previously a privately held LLC was that owner was ready to be done. And we just 
we knew that mechanism couldn't land in the wrong hands. So long-winded way of saying, like in order to secure our ability to scale the growing of food and the distribution of food and the accessibility of, of organically grown or regeneratively grown foods in this region, we had to also grow distribution. I think you are incredible. And I don't know if you see it through this lens. And so I want I want to share how I see it. But you are identifying problems and pinch points within the system and creating models and templates that are both honoring that there must be an economy of scale while also having reverence for the fact that in nature there is no growth in perpetuity and that there has to be a cap and to work to find that sweet spot is what we need and and you're doing that and you're templating it across across several different sectors which is incredible and um, i I just think you're I just think you're amazing and I just want to pause and tell you that. <laughs> well, you know how I feel about you too. And I just thank you for seeing, you know, the work I do. Sometimes it can feel so like, well, if I talk to the wrong person about it, they might be like, "Oh my god, like, you know, like it's it could seem disjointed, but there is the, the access that runs through it all. That is the 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 congruence, that is the continuity that I need for all this work not to feel too like all over the place because yeah. I, I do operate around this access so I can context switch from this work on Havstad and this work on range and this work on agricultural connections all with the through line. And to touch on, this kind of brings us back to what we were talking about earlier with like people feeling so overwhelmed by the big picture. Mm. It's liberating. It's empowering to think within limits. So it, it really is because if I were to think about solving all of the world's food insecurity issues, I may as well not get up tomorrow. <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> yes. like, how do I even, you know, but what I can do is I can focus here on Central Oregon, and even just Central Oregon is a complicated, big enough system for me to even think about how do we deal with uh, a future of, of food supply here. But but those limits, um, it is it, it's a liberating place to operate because you can have real impact. I want to tell a little story about somebody who I admire greatly. This is one of my peers here in Central Oregon, and her name is Megan French, and she has a farm in Bend called Boundless Farmstead. Megan has always been a local food advocate, and she worked at some nonprofits, and she worked at the uh, local VOR, which is a uh, a local food. It's not quite a cooperative; it's a not for profit grocery store in Bend that sources all local food. And, and then she started farming and now they have a farm and, um, Megan, I think it was seven years ago, she started, uh, an event here called fill your pantry. And she had seen models of this done in the Valley of Oregon and fill your pantry is this bulk by farmer's market that happens in the fall. And so people who come are just, you know, consumers who want access to local food and you come and you buy 
uh, food in bulk direct from your farmers and ranchers. And the idea is fill your pantry for the winter ahead. So it's your staples. It's your onions and your potatoes and your winter squash, your meats and your bone broths and your garlic and all the things that are going to store all winter long. And if you're lucky, there'll be a little bit of the last of the season's greens, you know, your ferments, your soap, your honey, like it's all the things from this area. And, you know, the first year it was at this Grange Hall, you know, it was a tiny little thing that we all did and we all had our like little tables and it was just small and folky and it was great. And this last year, so year seven of Fill Your Pantry in Central Oregon, took up this entire giant parking lot at the fairgrounds. There were thousands of people that came to buy local food to eat all winter long. I'm even willing to share numbers. I mean, on that single day, our farm does, you know, between ten dollars to $15,000 of sales. And that's just our farm. So think about that multiplied between all the yeah. other vendors who are there. Um, wow. And it's, and people now, and it was snowing, the weather was shitty, but everyone came and they were bundled up. People come literally with their like um, garden carts. Like people get serious about preparation, mm-hmm. people pre-order. And so in seven years, this because Megan French was like, you know what, local food matters and I want to do this here. She started with this tiny event in the Grange, which now has this huge, not only like environmental impact in that you've got all these people who are going to be eating local food winter long now, you've got a, like a totally different cultural connection and mindset. We yes. now have thousands of people who think about how they're going to prepare to eat for the winter ahead by buying local. You've got a, a huge economic impact, both in the lives of the farmers who walk away from that event with more money for the winter. And then mm-hmm. you've also got all the people who might like local food or organic food can come with this sort of like nose up, like, like it's for rich people attitude. But when you buy in bulk at these events, you're buying yeah. food for far cheaper than you could ever get it at the grocery store. Um, yes. So you've got low income people who can access the most nutrient dense food possible through bulk buying. And it's just incredible. That's one individual who just decided to do something. And the ripples of that decision are changing like the attitudes and and the relationships between consumers and growers and local food systems in Central Oregon. And so that, right, to come back to like the liberation of operating within limits, Megan can't solve all of our food distribution issues, but this one decision in Central Oregon has made massive impact. Yeah. Absolutely. And every time you post about this, every year that you post about this, I feel such a deep desire for this to be something that is happening in my community. And I see what a feedback loop it creates, that it's good for every shareholder in that system and is honoring, you know, the farmer, consumer, education, ecosystem. Every piece of that is being nourished in this one space and it's bringing people together. And I didn't say this, and it's so worth saying, the emotional um, fulfillment both ways for a farmer and a rancher to see that sort of a show up on a snowy day in November, like that makes you feel appreciated and like you matter 
and your services to the world are valued. And when times are hard and agriculturalists can feel like shit, every possible thing is against us. Like just that interaction at the end of the season can be the thing to fill the cup to keep going. And in the reverse, the consumer feels their sense of place. They are, and then they are consuming their sense of place. The food becomes a part of who they are. That feedback loop for the consumer and what that might do for them, like, don't be overwhelmed by the weight of the world and what the media will tell you about the burning of it all. Because here's your place in it, and it's showing up at Fill Your Pantry, and your place is also to then go home and cook that food. And every time you grab a potato and an onion from your burlap in the garage and you start cooking, like, it will bring a smile to your face because you will think about the fill your pantry day, you'll think about the conversations you had with your growers, you will feel the sense of connection to all of it. And it's just the most beautiful, for the words, economics of peace to jump off the page and embody an experience, fill your pantry, and what Megan created is an economics of peace. Thank you for sharing that. I think that's a really a really powerful story for what change can look like just within a community, just at that scale. Yep. And it's, yeah. I want to take a little bit of a turn, if that's okay with you. <laughs> yeah. And I'm having so much fun. <laughs> good, good. Um, sometimes I want to build a reverse interview. Yeah. I think that. Oftentimes, sometimes we get we get a peek inside somebody's mind and then we hear about what they're building in the world. Mm. But sometimes I think the reverse can be even more powerful, Mm. that you get a chance to see what someone is building in the world, to see the revolutions that 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 outer edge of their self is making. And it gives you this curiosity to really get at that access point. And I thought a lot about what could possibly lay at the center of your incredible (sighs) resilience, your incredible ingenuity, your desire to, to problem solve, your desire to connect. And I kept coming back to this idea of where beauty and function and nature intersect. When I look at what you've built, whether it's with Kassad Family Farms or it's with Range or it's with Havstad Hat Company, like you are looking at like what, what function can I, can I bring, like, how can I bring functionality to this world? How can I bring a sense of fulfilling something that is really needed, whether it's just a hat on our head or a full integration of a community or an entire different way of looking at a supply chain that changes both the, the entry point for farmers and soil and marrying it with just the most incredible beauty 
I think I see that in your bags and I see that in your hats, but I also see that in the way that you approach community, right? Mm -hmm. Like this, a beautiful economy of peace with which you approach your life and your community and you marry it all with nature, whether it's dyeing the hats and the hues of the high desert or the nature of the hides from your cattle or just an incredible field of biodiverse plants that are propping one another up. Mm-hmm. How did you get there? What What is at the heart of that that, that like drives Kate to create those systems? Mm. That is the forever journey. <laughs> Finding out what is, you know, what is what is what is in the marrow that like produces this kind of insatiable desire to do these things. Mm-hmm. I used to just mm-hmm. think that it could be my upbringing. I was thinking about this because actually, right, we talked earlier about epigenetics and seeds, and we talk about and resilience on land and that adaptation and let's bring that into like observation of like self so if i were to think about what i come from what's my seed stock i come from my mother and father obviously um and what do they come from my mom's side of the family comes from the ukraine and poland uh so eastern european jewish heritage And my dad's side of the family is an Irish kind of Norwegian background. And so, I mean, why am I the way that I am? I would say is a (laughs) makeup of all of the ancestors that came before me, their resilience, what they came from. I actually learned, so a little family history. So Havstad is a town in Norway. That's my last name. And... Um, oftentimes, you know, when people emigrated, it may not have been our family name when they lived there, but when they emigrated, they often took the name of the town that they left. And so coming from that region, Habstad is actually this like genre of functional and beautiful tin vases out of Norway. So you can like look up like a Havstad tin. So I don't know exactly. I want to go and actually explore that. But there's literally like a genre of like beautiful functional tin artwork out of Norway. And then if I think about my mother's side of the family, when her ancestors left the Ukraine and Poland right in time, like right before World War II, like really took hold. Um, and then the anti-Semitism was already so strong and that's what actually led them to leave, which actually to take the story a step further, it was, I think my great, great, great grandmother who her family sent her to America. And one of the reasons they sent her was because she was, well, she was sort of a danger to herself. She was a very outspoken Um, and strong young woman. And so thus she was the target. She would be a target of Mm -hmm. uh, an Mm anti-Semitic campaign. So, I mean, why am I the way I am? I come from very strong Jewish women. (laughs) And, and I feel this too. Like when I know 
no lack of challenges in everything that we're doing. Like really, we have hard, hard days and, and I can speak optimistically and with fortitude, but uh, I have low days. But on those low days, like what I really think about is like, <laughs> this ain't hard. You know, like this ain't hard. Think about what my family endured to allow me to be here to have this chance to suffer and work through my own suffering. Like that, that family, that ancestral perspective of resilience and the honoring of all that had to come before to allow me this chance to suffer through my own like stupid problems of like, why am I addicted to social media? <laughs> like, give me a fucking, break. <laughs> you know, <laughs> don't squander what was you know, enslavement and persecution and daunting trials to get to where we are today. I know you have this in you too. And that's a part of your story mm -hmm. of Western daughters. So like that mm -hmm. is why I am the way I am. And then my mother's side of the family for context too. So um, when they ended up in Missouri, her family had a small, they were actually Ukrainian ranchers um, and so when they landed in Missouri, uh, they had a, a, a small processing facility in a butcher shop. And then I think it was my wow. grandpa guy guy. They then spun out and had a, a dress, like a dress company, pattern makers and, and the fabrication of women's dresses. So like, who knows how? all of this stuff like i didn't know this history like i i don't consciously think of this history but like look at what i'm doing in the world <laughs> like i'm designing and raising meat and you know utilizing hides like there's something coming through and i would love to believe that it is a product of the past yeah i was thinking the other day that we talk so much about intergenerational trauma but we don't talk about intergenerational joy or intergenerational strength yes i i i'm not sure what that what that word is yeah. but as you traversed that story like we don't we don't talk about the good that is being passed down and how that is absolutely transformative to us, even without knowing that history. And I think that that's so incredible that you ended up doing what you're doing, given, given that history. Isn't that crazy? Um, <laughs> it's wild. And so I think, I think we have to remember that epigenetics, right? They can, they can shift us in a negative direction, yeah. but they can also shift us in a wildly positive direction. That I, there is this intergenerationally built strength. Yeah, and I would argue, like, no doubt, I mean, we're all going to be handled, handed some not so positive aspects of our family history. Yes. But I would love every person to feel this way on your hardest of hard days, in your moments of doubt. If you can tap into this understanding that the only reason you are here today is because of the resilience and the fortitude of your ancestors to get you here. Like that, that is something that can make you feel a fortitude that comes from a well that is so much deeper than like, oh, today I have the strength to do X, Y, or Z. 
this is like, this is, this is very deep ancestral fortitude that provides you the opportunity to be here today and struggle through all of our modern day struggles. Puts mm. it into perspective, you know, like it does the X a chance to suffer. Oh yeah. Like I love a it. A chance to suffer. That put me, that put a lot into perspective to me. It is an opportunity to suffer. I have this um, little thing on my wall right now in my hat workshop, which is the effort is the reward. And mm -hmm. whether you think about the chance to suffer, like I'm so grateful I get to get up today and take on this challenge. It might feel so big if you have this myopic lens, but that, that big with the myopic lens gets very small when you zoom out from a generational perspective. So that can help when things feel overwhelming and mm. big, but also like, it, it could be easy to get lost in the day to day, like say, I'll just use that, that, uh, that in my hat workshop. If I were to just focus on myself as like, I've got X amount of orders. I've got these materials that are delayed. I've got this customer that's waiting on me. Like that could feel like, um, I don't know, annoying, right? <laughs> like, but if I shift the mentality when I'm in my hat workshop with that phrase of the effort is the reward, like all of this process, I, it is a gift to get to be here dealing with this challenge. And hmm. I truly find that shifts my mentality if I ever get into one of those little ruts of, of the day-to-day -day menial tasks. With such a powerful heritage and with such beautiful gifts being passed down your line, how has Heston's entrance into the world changed the way that you, that you view sharing that with him? Oh, <laughs> Heston is the most incredible thing to happen to me. <laughs> There's nothing more that I want for Heston to see exemplified for him than parents driven by a sense of purpose. Like, uh, how do I distill that? Well, let me add this piece into it. Let me let yeah. me find it in my notes. Yeah. Let me find it here. Because you texted me earlier and you texted me a song by the Beach Boys. <laughs> yeah. And you told me to imagine you air punching your shackles on the long promised road of letting my soul's purpose manifest on earth. <laughs> I may have smoked a little bit of weed when I texted that to you. <laughs> I loved it so much because it communicated a little bit of suffering, a lot of purpose, long journey. And I don't know if we have kids, like I want them to see that. Like I want them to see purpose. I want them to see that it isn't immediate yeah. and that it's hard. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so anyone who's listening should go immediately pause go listen to Long Promised Road by the Beach Boys and imagine ear punching your way through throwing off the shackles <laughs> on your path to purpose. Um, we'll link it so it's easy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, that is 
well, like, okay, let me like, let me reverse. So like, what has been the example that I saw? So I observed my parents in raising of three daughters, which now that I have one child, I'm like, holy shit, how did they do it with three? Both self-employed people, middle-class people who had lots of challenges. They had financial challenges. They had legal challenges. They had, you know, probably their own interpersonal challenges. They had family challenges. And I saw them struggle. And I also had a sort of relationship with them where they were so open and honest with me and us about talking about those challenges, um, very open about admitting or talking about their own failures. And, and that's how parenting was modeled to me. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, things that my father has said to me over the years, like so much of what he said to me, like lives in me on a day-to-day -day basis. One thing that I'll point out, like, this is a silly little story, right? But my dad one time had to fill in as a, a substitute coach for my like, you know, U9, like, like, I'm eight years old or something, right? Playing soccer, and he's our substitute coach. And in that particular game, with my dad as my coach, I scored like eight goals in a game. Like it was absurd. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I had, I had that sort of a figure in my life who made me feel like I could do anything. And at the same time, like when I was in college and I was just like, what am I doing here? Like, what's the point? You know, like I felt like I was really wasting time. And he would just be super real and be like, you're learning how to learn. You're also learning how to check bureaucratic boxes, which is a very real part of life. Get used to it. Get your degree. Don't complain. You know, it was like, don't drop out. Just do the thing. It's suffering. It's fine. He also, like, he was a long distance runner. So, like, long distance runners all have to love suffering to a certain extent, you know? And, and like, yeah, and my mother, like my mother is just sort of this, um, she's a psychologist, and she is a very cerebral person. And if I were to give my mom a mission statement, which like she has sort of voiced in her own way, her study of psychology and family systems, her goal in being a clinical psychologist has always been to help people do better in difference with others. So no matter what, we're going to have these moments of conflict and difference, whether it's in the family system or it's in our communities at large. And she's operated from a place of just wanting to help people do better when they're in difference with others. My father was, he was an activist. He was full of like passion and fire and like that lives in me. He's a count. I mean, he dropped out of college. He likes to say he went to college to find a wife because that's where he met my mom. <laughs> <laughs> went on to be the academic. He dropped out and he went, it was when the Vietnam War and the recruitment for that war was really hot and heavy and he was a conscientious objector. And he dropped out of college to go study at John Baez's Institute for Nonviolence. So like that activism, that fire, 
paired with this like cerebral thoughtful systems thinker of my mom like that was what was modeled to me and and the honesty and the transparency and the willingness to talk with humility about their shortcomings that is why i am the way i am so when i think about the marrying of what heston is the combination of me and chris Chris brings this groundedness and this um, this connection to spirit that I think Heston will have. And I think he will have the kind of drive and mischievousness that um, both Chris and I share. And so... I guess I'm rambling to say that I want Heston to have so much of what I feel so fortunate to have been given, and and that is the opportunity to see parents work with purpose and find his own place in that work and be driven by purpose and and humility and reverence and love. (laughs) I... I just think you you are a gift to him as much as he is a gift to you and it was beautiful to hear that and it's been it's been a gift for me to watch your transition into motherhood and to navigate that as you also navigate owning a farm and these businesses and you have a really beautiful way of of balancing it in all of its imperfection. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't want to, I don't want to over glorify it, but I think that's what makes it so beautiful to me is that I just see you navigating it with such a plum. I worried about motherhood. I, I'll be totally honest. And we've had our own private conversations about this because I never felt particularly maternal. I think in a, in a way that maybe motherhood is presented, you know, and I worried about a loss of independence. And I, I, you know, I had, you know, I worried about not being fully ready. Like we're not fully financially ready or I in my career yeah. am not fully ready yet to give this time to this little being. And the best advice anyone ever gave me was my friend was like, you'll never be ready, but you figure it out. You know, like it, it um, and again, like we have all the conveniences of modern day life at our disposal. Like what did my ancestors do to figure it out <laughs> back in the day? And, you know, there, there's plenty of books about this. I hardly read any books about pregnancy or motherhood, but there was one that I read called The Continuum Concept. And I just think if you study other cultures uh, and how they rear children, you can just strap and honestly i look to ranch women the only women i wanted to talk to about being pregnant and having children were like my rancher friends who were mothers because those women will just tell you that you strap that baby on and you get to it you know yeah let's not over glorify it it's hard and there are days where you feel like you're failing or like you know, ah, shit, I didn't get enough done. Or man, he really saw me be frazzled and short with Chris. Or, you know, but like, he's also just along for the ride of it all. And he has been a catalyst for me in a way that I don't think 
anything else could have been. Like when it comes to self-care, when it comes to zeroing in my focus on purpose, when it comes to working on my relationship with my husband, nothing has been more of a catalyst than to bring a Heston into the world. (laughs) You know? And it took me a long time. It, It took me a long time to just find my equilibrium and I'm still finding my footing as a mother. He's constantly changing and evolving. And so what he needs from us is constantly like changing and evolving, but I've grown more in this past year and a half than I have in the past 10 years, you know? Do you think, I think something that's interesting about what you said is that being farmers teaches us how to change and evolve, right? And I think what you and Chris have experienced is an unintentional evolution of farming from what you thought it was going to be with these pressures around water into something else. And I wonder if parenthood does that too. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. My entry into motherhood was the most uh, (laughs) tangible lesson of take your ideas of control over what will be and throw that shit out the window. You know, like um, I had a whole vision and plan for my birth, right? It did not go at all according to the plan. (laughs) (laughs) I had a vision and a plan for what the first 90 days of motherhood would be like. And I read the book and I was ready with all the Ayurvedic recipes and I was not going to leave the house for this many days. And guess what? Like life presented situations that required me to travel with Heston when he was very little. And that wasn't a part of the plan. So motherhood in and of itself is absolutely, like you said, just this process of letting go of your preconceived notions of what will be and listening to what you will become. I love that. I don't think I think that's just such a great message and I'm I'm grateful to you for for showing me what might be possible in motherhood as I navigate that that whether or not that is in the cards for me because I think that you've done it in a way that has opened up possibility for me. Mm. Just Yeah, I'm really appreciative. I'm so glad. I think more more women, you know, probably need alternative just views of, of, of what it can be. And to also talk openly about what's hard, what we fear, how we might be selfish, right? Like those are taboo subjects when you're supposed to be this all giving maternal force, right? But it's the women in my life who got real with me and were like, hey, <laughs> You might look out that window on week three of being inside the house and really resent your husband. You know, like you don't mean to, you don't want to, and just know that's normal. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> like that's not in the books, right? Um, those conversations to shine a light on the shadowy sides, I think, are necessary. Okay. We're back together. We're talking about motherhood. We were talking about motherhood. And one of the um, 
the concept that I most appreciate in helping me think about um, being a mother who, you know, is, is striving and achieving and driven by purpose. And Heston is a part of this world Chris and I have created. I don't know if this came from which book this came from, but I think it's actually quite damaging when we raise children in a way that we make them feel like they're the center of the universe and we actually build our entire lives around them. And I think there's like, there's pressure to do that sort of. And, um, and in fact, like I want Heston to feel a part of the bigger thing that he is a part of here with us and in this family like he has a he has a role and he has a purpose here with us and he is folded into that life and into that purpose and into that work every day that really helped me because i think the fear i operated from about motherhood was that i would have to stop or neglect or push to the side these things that are so important to me in order to build my world around him. And that was incorrect thinking. It, it, it is a, an, a, a service to them to raise them in a way where they understand they are not the center of the universe. They are a part and they have a role in this bigger system we all work to create. That's what I love about ranch and farm kids is they are raised with chores and purpose and like get your coat on and get in the trucks. We got to go get that cow. Like, you know, yeah. So that's liberating too. I think I needed to hear that on a couple of different levels because I think there is this sort of Instagram idea of children being the center and this loss of independence, which is a fear that I share. And I also think that from the outside looking in, not as a parent, which gives me massive blinders, but all the same, that children need a purpose. They need jobs within their family system to be a a member of that family. And I think we talked about this when we were together. I think so often with kids, there is this their help isn't helpful. It makes more, it makes more mess. And so we discourage them from helping when that natural state is that they want to integrate into life and to have purpose, to have chores, to have a job, to have to have place within the ecosystem of the family unit. Yeah. And I know that Nicolette Nyman and I touched on some of the intangible benefits of ranching being giving children that space and that purpose and that agency and ownership. Yeah. And I have to bring this back to the fact that my partner, I have a Chris in this, like, oh my God, what an incredible father he is. And Chris's background before he went fully into farming, his last town job was he was a Montessori school teacher. So he carries with him that uh, mentality about children and fostering that creativity and that usefulness. So that sort of Montessori approach to make the entire environment around them, like at their scale, like all the utensils of their size. So they pick up that whisk and it feels natural in their hands. So Heston whisks the eggs with me and it makes sense to him because it at his, at his scale and his level. Yeah. Building that into 
a child that's going to feel really useful and have purpose, I think is, you know, I'm hopeful. He seems pretty awesome so far. (laughs) He seems very awesome. (laughs) I want to ask you some, we've talked a lot about driving forces and purpose. And one of the things that you've written about that I think is really beautiful is the way that your father, even after death, serves as part of the voice in your head and part of the conversation that you have with yourself as you go throughout the world. And I think what I didn't realize before recording this podcast with you was just how much heritage and family systems you're carrying, that you are carrying the voices of both of your parents, that you are carrying the epigenetics or the intergenerational strengths, however we want to put it, of this long lineage of function and beauty. And you're also carrying this relationship with your father. And I'm, I'm doing a podcast on Wednesday with a woman who talks about home, home death care and home funeral care. Mm-hmm. And she talks about forming a relationship with our dead. And this really struck mm. me. Oh, that's still a relationship that we have. And mm-hmm. as I was thinking about it, I think out of anybody I know, you exemplify carrying that relationship with you daily. And mm-hmm. I hope it's okay that we touch on this and, and let yeah. me know if it's not. But I, I, love, I love the way that you write about this. I love to talk about my dad. I always just, I'm nervous or I, I preface it with that the um, like emotions just live very close to the surface. So it's not a bad thing. Yeah. They're just, they, they're, they're there and they present when I talk about him. But my dad passed away. God, I guess it would have been a year, not a year and a half yet. November of 2021. And you know, such, I think I've spoken a lot about him and it's probably perceived such an incredibly important force in my life. So the loss of that in physical form has been a huge adjustment for the whole family. And one of the ways that I have learned to adjust is through not necessarily physically speaking out loud to him every day, but absolutely talking to him every day. And the cycles of grief, like, (laughs) (sighs) that time was so interesting because I was a brand new mother. Heston was about three months old when things started to shift with his health. He had been sick with cancer, but he had been doing very well. And it just kind of all of a sudden things shifted and took a different turn. And so I was still was kind of like wide open portal (laughs) post birth learning how to be a mother 
And then in between the space of like birth and then death of my father, and that continued on after he passed, that liminal space, which is, I mean, a very disembodying time. I've never really experienced that sense of disembodiment that I did then. And I would say then as in like a year. <laughs> and what what really kind of has helped me, yeah, has to just reframe this relationship with him in which he was my best coach. He was my dear friend. He was my confidant. When I doubted myself, he had the confidence in me to just say, you're doing great. Keep going. And there were moments in those early months where I really crumbled because I thought I didn't have him to turn to. And that's not true. <laughs> uh, he lives in me. He is the reason I make decisions the way I make decisions. The principles he set me up with. I mean, he actually did a, an interview with my aunt who was training to be a hospice nurse. Mm. And when she asked him, what are some of the lessons that you have imbued on your daughters, right? That, that you, give you comfort. He didn't really want to talk about anything specific. He just wanted to talk about these, like the principle that he imbued on us and that we carried those principles so clearly. And he had all the confidence in the world because we carry those principles. So, I mean, what are those principles? You actually highlighted this in your notes, which made me so happy to see. Like, what is, what is one of those principles that I carry with me every single day? And this is a quote. He gave me great books throughout my lifetime. But um, this was a, an article that this man, Ira Sandpearl, wrote. Ira Sandpearl was one of his teachers when he left college and studied at Joan Baez's Institute for nonviolence. Ira Sandpearl was one of those teachers and one of the leaders of that movement, was a dear friend to Joan Baez. He owned a bookstore in the Palo Alto area of California. And when Joan Baez was a high school student, she used to go hang out at his bookstore. And so Ira Sandpearl is like this formative figure of who Joan Baez became. And so this piece that Ira Sandpearl wrote, my dad sent to me and one of the sentences that i just want to highlight from that piece that is like a principle my father imbued in us is that the ends do not determine the means the means determine the ends and when you when you operate from that perspective i think that creates the type of human that will look at the world in the way that I look at the world in which, yeah, I will reverse engineer things and understand that like those means will determine the ends. And so consciously like be, be very conscientious about the work you do, the impact you have, the decisions you make and how you apply yourself in the short time on earth. I love that. I think that 
that in so many ways encapsulates so much of this conversation and so much of that that purpose that you have unshackled here on earth. <laughs> <laughs> and to carry that voice with you, to carry that relationship with you. I think from the outside looking in, there it is like a seed in the way that you are building so many of the other relationships that are taking root within your community. Yeah. And can I, um, can I give you one more quote? Please. Because I want the whole world to think about this. And I think about this. And this was um, in one of those conversations about regret that my dad had with me. Things he may have, things he may have regretted. This came up. And he touched on this because he didn't really like, he was reflecting on like, why didn't I continue with my life as an activist? He met my mother, he mm. supported her in her academic endeavors to get her PhD and become a psychologist. He became a contractor and he supported our family through being a contractor. And he felt like he had perhaps left this activism behind. You know, and so he was reflecting on this maybe regret of like, why didn't I continue that? And I would say to him, like, Dad, look at the three daughters you created. You just created three activists out in the world. Like, you did your part. <laughs> because me and my sisters are all why. <laughs> but this is something he said in one of those conversations, and I'll just read it. But there were so many ways to pursue work, paying work that could have been a career, working against idiot ideas that lead to war, hunger, the ruining of lives, and loss of human potential that racism means, oppression of innocent people based on just where they were born on the planet. There's no shortage of idiot ideas out there that need to be worked against. That's maybe the definition of an activist, doing important work against idiot ideas harmful ideas, unsustainable ideas. We need more activists and less obedient people. Tom Havstad. Hmm. So in no matter where we are and what exact work we end up doing in the world, there's always an opportunity to work against the idiot ideas that need us to revolt. <laughs> Yes. Yes. A revolution. A revolution. It's of, time. Of, of beauty and of peace. I mean, his, his, his pacifism, his, his uh, rebelling that like uh, violence is the answer. Like he was ready to go to jail based on those principles. And so in all the revolutions that I think myself or my sisters uh, work on, they are ones of nonviolence, you know? I wonder for people that are listening to this and an economy of peace resonates with them, that a Tom Havstad level of activism resonates with them. Do you have any 
any parting words for the loops and the circles and the revolutions that we create? Mm. I think to really like to write that statement down and spend time thinking on it, that the ends do not determine the means, the means determine the ends. And really like our time on planet earth is so finite and small. And the work that we do, it really matters. It, it really matters where we place our energy. And there are so many ways to make a, a living in which you can contribute your unique genius to create a more beautiful, a more peaceful world and, and, and think about that. And things don't have to change or shift or you don't have got to quit your job right now. But like, if, if that idea were to pollinate and the creative genius of people were applied in ways that created beauty and peace and we thought about how we consume from the food that we eat to the fiber on our body to you know where we buy our groceries to how we pay it forward in the world that ripple, like I want to come back to that story of this woman, Megan, starting this one event in Central Oregon and how big those ripples become. There's so much opportunity to find your place in all of these movements. And it doesn't, you don't have to be the farmer to participate in creating an agriculture of peace. You know, you can be the cook, you can show up in the kitchen. We can't do this if you don't show up in the kitchen and cook and have reverence for that which we grow for you. So we need you to cook. So actually, let's bring this back to something you and I went off on in New York, which is like, we really, yes, we really need you to cook. Like, we need you to cook. We need you to cook. I could get what it is the intersection of health and agriculture and creating strong families, all of these things. We need you to cook. We need you to cook. And I won't do it any more justice than say, like Michael Pollan did a series called Cooked that you can find on Netflix. So next time you sit down to chill out and do your Netflix time, watch Michael Pollan's series Cooked. And you will be so inspired to cook because it doesn't need to be complicated, but we need you to participate nope. in this economy of peace we're trying to build in agriculture. And we need you to demand that the companies you buy products from, like think about the producer and they think about the impacts on land and when it, in the raw material sourcing we do. And we really actually, we need people to participate in politics, like local politics. I mean, all this stuff that we talked about earlier, mm -hmm. whether it's access to food or it's water in your region to grow that food or it's land use policies, people have to participate in that avenue too. But anyways, I mean, I could get all cerebral about all the asks I have, but like, I, I love actually bringing it back to that thing that you and I both could just go off on, which is that revolution really starts in the kitchen because you know what, like my own health journey, your health journey, the health of community and place, like it all starts with that, which we consume. Like 
our brains won't function very well. We won't think very clearly. We'll exist in sort of this brain fog of feeling shitty if we don't eat well. So we need your mind to work very well so you can put yourself to work in the best of ways. And that will start in the kitchen. So if you want a revolution, if you of beauty and of an economy of peace, then I guess I'll just ask you to cook. Mm. I love it. It's perfect. I have absolutely nothing to add. Please cook your way to this revolution. Cook your way to an economy of peace. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we will have links for everything in the show notes, but where can people find you? So you can find me on Instagram in some ways. Uh, you know, uh, the farm is Cassad Family Farms. You can find me at Range Revolution. You can find me at Habs Dad Hatco. We actually just started this perfect, imperfect YouTube page. I think the title of the page is First Generation Organic Farming on YouTube. And we're really aiming to share more the stuff we talked about earlier, our closed loop farming system and how we've implemented these organic practices and scaled our operation from a three acre farm to 360 acre farm. Um, we really want to start kind of peeling back the veil and showing people more. So uh, follow us on YouTube. Uh, it will be a, a fun journey to kind of roll that out. I love, I love every bit of that. I can't wait to, I can't wait for people to hear this and I can't wait for people to hear Chris. And so I'll give that little teaser that Chris is going to come on here eventually and talk to me too. And we'll explore more, more elements of Kassad family farms and all of this together. And I'm just so grateful for the work that you're doing in the world. You inspire me and you inspire me in so many different levels. Like you inspire me and in the way that you parent, in the way that you entrepreneur, in the way that you farm, in the way that you dream, mm. really, really big dreams. Mm. Right back at you, Kate. You're such a kindred friend, <laughs> really. It's uh, what a fun and just like wonderful experience to do this with you. You have such a gift. Like, yeah, you really pull out mm. some incredible things of people and you know this, like I support you to no end. Thank you. Thank you for that support. It's meant the world to me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Mind, Body, and Soil podcast. If what you found resonated with you, may I ask that you share it with your friends or leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts? This act of reciprocity helps others find mind, body, and soil. If you're looking for more, you can find us at groundworkcollective.com and at Kate underscore Kavanaugh, that's K-A-T-E underscore K-A-V-A-N-A-U-G-H on Instagram. I would like to give a very special thank you to China and Seth Kent of the band All Right, All Right for the clips from their beautiful song Over the Edge from their album The Crucible. You can find them at All Right, All Right on Instagram and wherever you listen to music.